You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, it's John Spirisavet and Dan Ross. Hi, Dan. Hi, John. How's it going? It's good to be doing our penultimate episode of Tov. Yeah, it really is. We're coming toward the end of the season and the series, as we've been talking about. And just to do a little brainstorming and suggesting, I do want to mention that I think within a few days after this episode will drop, there will be a program that that I'm doing at the Valley Beit Midrash, which is from our colleague and friend, Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, who, who we've both referred to and had a co-host on the podcast before, where I'm going to attempt to, in an hour reflect on what I have learned by watching The Good Place in this way. And uh, if you are interested in doing that, participating in that live, you'd have time to sign up on the Valley Bait Midrash. It's $18, which goes to them, nothing to me. It's a good, it's a great organization. And I'm sure they will post the recording on their channel and their YouTube also. And hopefully they'll let us do the same. But you know, probably more importantly is that we want to just repeat our invitation, Dan's and mine and all the co-hosts to, to listeners out there, that if there's anything you want to do with us, you know, if you want to do a segment with us or go loop back to something, or send us something you want us to engage with or whatever, we're, we don't have to put this thing quite to bed just because we will finish the episodes. We've got a few things up our sleeve to, to kind of tie up. I noticed, John, that you did not choose to take Rav Shmuley up on his offer of debating you about veganism and Judaism. I don't know if you if you saw that, but I think he's he's doing this amazing thing where he has debates with rabbis, and then they like decide <laughs> what their congregations decide who won the argument about veganism and Judaism. So. You know. Yes, and the challenge is that he will give five thousand dollars to the the rabbi who can defeat him to do you know. <laughs> and if I believed he was wrong, I would happily uh, yeah. buy for that. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think the other thing, Dan, you know, you and I were talking about maybe doing a, a book review series on on Mike Schur's book, which would be a oh, nice extension. Yeah, and the other thing is that I think, and maybe you'll help, and and uh, Rebecca and Sari and and others in particular is to see if there's like some issue of moral philosophy that we somehow haven't touched in our episode by episode look that we might somehow need to go back and and look at. But we're open to ideas. We don't want to overstay our welcome in podcast land. But but certainly if you're hearing this in any time of sort of May, June, even summer of 2023 and want to to toss something to us to do something with, we'd be happy to take it up. And, And John, I'll just say that, again, my sincerest gratitude to you for starting this journey with all of us. It's been such an incredible project and you've had such a remarkable vision and collected so many incredible colleagues to participate. And I enjoy listening to every episode, which I do listen to every episode and and just hearing my colleagues and your wisdom. So God bless you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, no, thank you. It was not a vision so much as a just leaping in and we've all done (laughs) this as volunteers. And I do understand that Dan listens to us on like two and a half speed. So I bet our voices are all, we talk fast to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is true. It's very interesting also to hear you who I talk to every, every week at, you know, at two and a half speed or, or my colleagues at two and a half. Or yourself. (laughs) Or myself. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I sound pretty normal because I speak pretty quick clip, but anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dive into this episode. Give us Dan the summary. 
So we're talking about Chapter 51, Patty, written by Megan Amram and directed by Morgan Sackett. The group arrives at the actual good place that attends a welcome party tailored to each of their tastes. Chidi meets the ancient Greek philosopher Hypatia of Alexandria, who reveals that an eternity of perfection leads to boredom, and in her case, mind bush. The Good Place Committee has tried various new ideas, <laughs> but has been, I just love that whiteboard of ideas, <laughs> has been unable to remedy the situation. So now that Michael is there, they trick him into joining the leadership and they all resign. Eleanor proposes a solution. Michael will create a door that will allow people to exit the good place when they choose and peaceful and to choose a peaceful end to their time in the universe. The group goes to their individualized good place homes. Chidi and Eleanor cuddle as they watch the sunset. Chidi remarks that the good place is not a place at all, but rather having enough time with the people you love. Well, I think we kind of agreed that this episode is hilarious and maybe philosophically less meaty. And to be fair, it's wrapping up this show and and most of the big ideas have really already been, been told to us, although there's a nice little twist here on this one in terms of how the good place, how, how you do your your stint there and how you finish it. But oh my God, Jason, as 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 in this segment of the season, I think generally on fire, monkeys are the ideal go-kart opponents. They're funny enough to give the finger, but not smart enough to win. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that was that was amazing. I also loved the flying puppy, the very beginning. And I wonder some of the most expensive thing that they can do in, in in television is obviously CGI. They used to talk about this with Game of Thrones all the time that they would like you know only have enough money for you know a certain number of dragons or direwolves in each episode. And so I, you know let's let's be real. The CGI is like. You know, I almost wonder if they're laughing at that and that they've kind of like the rainbow portal and all those things like and the flying puppy, if they've kind of like making a, a you know, more of a knock on the CGI and like deliberately not having the best kind of out there. Although if you listen to the NBC podcast, the the CGI guy, David Neednagel, they they revere him and his ability to create stuff. And they they talked, as I think we've referred to, about how he would do his first draft stuff using his kids and he'd, they'd bring in the first look at stuff and it would be, you know, one of his kids with vomiting coins or whatever it is that Janet does in one oh. of the episodes. And, and in his honor, I believe... They named some creature the Nidnoggle and something. It might have been the time knife thing or something oh like that. Oh my god! But, yeah. I I also loved where Eleanor kisses the bedpan. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? I, I didn't. It was it Steve Austin, Stone Cold. Steve I Austin? think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was that was really something. And then I think that this was pre-COVID, but the the guy who got a cut on his hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh yeah! Killed for a vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> I helped the poor in ancient Phoenicia. Excellent. I once had a soul cycle instructor named Phoenicia. How did you die? I got a cut on my hand. The year was 2491 BC. So that's pretty much all it took. <laughs> you know, they, they really, they rag on anti-vax, you know, a couple of times in the show, not just this episode, but other ones before you know, who knew? Well, I mean, the question at the heart of the show is what do we owe each other, right? And, and uh, that yeah. vaccination is, is one of those things that we owe each other, <laughs> for sure. Just to be like semi-serious for a moment there. So that that character, the Phoenician guy is called, I looked up in the script because I didn't hear it clearly, Palti Baal. 
And, you know, you got biblical characters or characters in James Michener's The Source with, you know, Baal, who is a Canaanite god. But Palti is one of my favorite biblical characters, if this is who they're calling out. Palti bin Laish was the husband of Michal, a wife of King David from before he was king. She was the daughter of King Saul, who then took her away because David became his rival. And she became the wife of Palti. And Palti himself really only appears in the Bible in this one scene when David is becoming king and he has Michal taken from Palti. And as she's leaving, the text says Palti walked with her, weeping in despair at losing her until he was forced to go back home. Just this like one line, vivid, chilling scene. So Hmm. there you are, Palti, with your one biblical line and immortalized possibly in The Good Place. That's nice. So one of the things we were talking about is the set of The Good Place. And like, as they panned out, I couldn't help but just kind of see, I mean, I'm sure it's some office park in Los Angeles that I I, I don't know, but it kind of looked like the the campus of the Hebrew University. <laughs> or, in Jerusalem. Uh, in Jerusalem. Or, or even the Hebrew Union College, my alma mater in Jerusalem. Like it just, it kind of had that Jerusalem stone feel to it in a weird way which kind of took me out of the episode for a moment. (laughs) I think we'll have to say that's what it was. Although also it is the Jacksonville Super Suites Hotel Ballroom where I had my prom and also traffic court. (laughs) (laughs) So we, we talked a little bit about how we, we wait, are we going to let, can we laugh a little more? Are you already? Yeah, we can laugh a little more. Yeah. yeah. Oh, just uh, cheaty geeking out over Hypatia of Alexandria and just, (laughs) Also, the scene where they're talking about, oh, my God, am I going to get to meet Aristotle, defendant slavery? <laughs> and I'm going to get to meet Socrates, kind of a drag. Am I going to get to Plato, also defended slavery? <laughs> oh, that was classic. But then I'm going to ask her so many questions pertaining to grand ideas about the universe, like, why? Oh, oh and also, ow. <laughs> and the cosmic Coachella. That was a, oh, that was yes. A, Can you explain that? I'm afraid I feel like Coachella is one of those things that I sort of know, but don't. My understanding is it's some fancy music festival in California where you can get like five-star tents, uh, five-star hotel-style tents and see amazing performances by Beyonce. But I, I don't really know much more about it than that. And I, you know, I'm not a big fan of tents, so I've never really had a desire to go to anything like that, but more power to those people who want to go to Burning Man and Bonnaroo and Coachella. I I, I don't think that those three go together other than that tents are involved and large outdoor. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like that could be that three pairing could be like a Tahani bit. Yeah. I once helped, helped Quincy Jones design Coachella. Yeah, something like Burning that. Man and Woodstock. You know? Yeah. <laughs> when they're meeting and Eleanor says, how do you get the of in your name? <laughs> Is it like where you're just hung out? The- <laughs> Am I Eleanor of the Cheesecake Factory? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was reminding me in the 2008 election where there was this thing about this guy who was known as Joe the Plumber, who Senator McCain was referring to. And John Stewart on The Daily Show did this thing about, is this campaign taking place during the Middle Ages? <laughs> <laughs> the last one that I can remember, I think it was Tom Brokaw, who um, christened John Paul II, John Paul the Great. Uh, oh. That's that's like the one that I can kind of, you know, remember from, from recent days of like somebody who just 
got that like Alexander the Great. Now we have a John Paul the Great. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's choosing of what signature type was a was a great thing. Oh, Doctor Blob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Middle school girl with crush on Zach Efron. Did you look closely at the the writing, like what kind of like hieroglyphics they had on that scroll? No, did you? I, I no, I just I noticed that I was like trying to figure out and I wanted Michael to like actually read it. Like it felt like such a you know absurd twist that he would sign this thing like the, without giving it. But also obviously his robes, and then there was the Hogwarts reference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look like Harry Potter, you know. I believe that they've had the hieroglyphic situation before when Michael had flaked out and they had to be the ones admitting the new humans in the experiment and they were given the books and they're all in like hieroglyphics or some such thing. And maybe they get Janet to decode them, I think. Yeah. I had a little autobiography moment, which is yeah. when Chidi says, do you mind if I go to Eleanor? Do you mind if I go find Hypatia? Uh, I promise it's strictly platonic, technically neoplatonic. <laughs> and I do remember, I'm not sure that I really know what neoplatonism is, but like two lines of it that I was told at a class with Professor Shinlin on medieval Jewish poetry changed my life because they they gave me this access to, I think there was this one idea that rather than God out there and us down here, and we struggle to communicate with each other, it was this, there is one soul and our souls basically want to be drawn to that. And it, it took some of the friction out of my spiritual life. Okay. So if any of that is technically Neoplatonic, then that's good. And if I've totally damaged any philosopher who's listening to this, I will, I will apologize and try to go read something real. Also, it was just really funny when Janet met the, the other Janet, and it was like, that's a Janet who's just happy to, people just ask you for things with no rhyme or reason. Yes. And then I get them for them. <laughs> and then they just, can I get a spaceship? No, one huge junior mint. <laughs> it's just, it was like, wow, it was just such a nice way to measure the trajectory there. Of and all of their comments about the soothing nature of the tone. Um, and, and also the compliments that they give Michael, like, you have such broad shoulders. They're so great for wearing a robe. <laughs> and, and I do just have to say at the end, when Jason comes back from his trip through the door to the fantasy world, you know, monkeys and go-karts was fun for a while. And I was like, <laughs> hippos and go-karts, <laughs> Dracula's with jetpacks. <laughs> <laughs> so what you were saying about CGI, I bet that there was just like, okay, we're going out. We have only a couple more hours of TV to write. We got to get all the jokes, all the brainstorms, everything wow. off the cutting room floor that we left in. If you could walk through that door, John, and go anywhere in time, including fictional time, and do anything, what would you do? Oh, my goodness. I have no idea, which is my problem probably with this whole thing. Um, I mean, with like trying to figure out this afterlife thing. I don't know. I'd go to the I'd go to the good place in Disneyland set and Ooh. like no, I'm just saying this off the top of my head and and have all you guys there too and my family. Wow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't know, though it would be crazy. I'm not sure I'd know how to handle it. <laughs> the stakes of that decision would feel quite high. Except that, you know, as is implied by this episode, you can just walk back out and walk back in whenever you want, right? So well, right. I guess if you can redo it, if you can try out a, a thing and then if you don't like that, you know, change it into Dracula's with jetpacks, then sure, I'll take a shot. <laughs> yeah, like, did you go Do you back? know? Do you know, Dan? Where no, you I mean, I'm just like, you know, like 
So like if you go back to the Big Bang or inside of a black hole, how do you get back out of that? How do you not get destroyed by the forces of nature? And that's like, are you just like utterly protected? Like what kinds of magic is involved in this? I mean, I, I, you know, let's be real. I'd probably go to Hogwarts, um, but, <laughs> but imagining the great cosmic moments. <laughs> I was asked a question like that at my rabbinical school interview, I, you know, given four choices, not an infinity of choices to make up. And I remember one choice that I ruled out got a sort of an ooh from the, from the committee. I said, I did not want to study Talmud full-time with one of the great Talmudists oh, of our era that was fourth on my list oh. the others are a little more world worldly but, you know um, i mean one of the things that we could do is we could add, ch- ask chat gpt this question right like, well i think we should ask our listeners and we should probably commit ourselves that we should come up with an answer and then anybody can post also on our facebook <laughs> or tweet that out that would be that would be good i think that this is where i get to in the show just sort of in now enjoying the ride out from the show and contemplating i have i have such trouble thinking about the afterlife or the perfected perfection as opposed to something that's quite a lot better than this world as it currently is. And I think you were starting to say something that I interrupted you. Oh, no. So I've been thinking about this episode a lot because I remember watching it the first time and feeling unsatisfied. It felt, and especially because, I mean, when we come to the last episode, which is a masterpiece of television, and it's just such an incredible, beautiful message that they offer and a really closing blessing, that this one actually felt a little bit rushed to me. Mm -hmm. Like there were some really interesting ideas that for whatever reason weren't given their full due most significantly this idea of eternal pleasure not being all that pleasurable because you don't get that necessary contrast that makes you know we, we talk about a lot in Judaism the distinction between what is sacred and what is profane or mundane and without that distinction, the, the sacred becomes meaningless. What, what makes it meaningful is the fact that there is a divide and that drinking stardust every morning for breakfast, which sounds delicious, by the way, but, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, anything can get old. Anything can get old, sadly. It's a question. I was looking both at Maimonides, what he has to say about this at the end of the Mishnah Torah, the very end of actually his law code. And then also thinking about what Professor May, who had talked with us before, had who who doesn't believe in one of these actual afterlifes, you know, has to say about the the fact of death. And Maimonides says that no, actually, being not stuck on the pleasures of the body or even the kind of cognitive emotions, I think he would say is amazing. And he says sort of the ideal would be that your soul goes up to be in the presence of the divine and is able to finish taking in the wisdom that it it couldn't get that it was well on the way to getting if you're like a tzaddik, if you're a, a particularly deserving or a person of integrity, and that it would be sort of like a finishing a finishing of your intellectual and spiritual awareness, and that with no friction, and you would just do that forever, and that would be amazing. And he says there are these statements in the Talmud which describe a, a constant banquet of tzaddikim, of righteous or amazing people who are enjoying a feast. And I think, you know, we, we might think of like the most amazing Shabbat gathering, both in terms of the food and the company and all that, and sort of doing that forever. And he says that that's the vibe, but that's not literally what it is, you know, but it would be like that. Hmm. And what I guess I like is this sense that, and what the good place suggests is that you die and you either have to go back, or if you, if you succeed in 
step one and you go into the good place, then you're, you do have work to do, but it's you or you can, you can choose what it is. And you, you've earned the right to set your own spiritual program and do it as you like until you think it's done, which is, I think, a really interesting thing. Because I do like the idea that my soul and my individuality is going to exist for, I, I like eternity, but, but I also am like, ah, what would that be like? You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, in order to truly appreciate it, it would require you to be a different kind of person. You wouldn't be able to be yourself in the same way, you know, as is the epiphany that moves the episode forward and and where Eleanor connects this moment in the good place back to that initial conversation that she had with Michael about every human being being a little bit sad because they know they're going to die. You have to have a different kind of self-understanding in order to not become a happiness zombie. Right. And at that moment, you wouldn't be you because there's this implied aspect of the human condition that, that Eleanor sort of surfaces in that moment. You know, what, what you just said about Maimonides reminds me of this passage in The Chosen, the, the novel by Chaim Potok, where Reb Saunders, who's one of the key characters, is, is giving a Devar Torah on Shabbat. And he's, he's using gematria, the practice of assigning each Hebrew letter a number, and he talks about the the difference between the Hebrew for olam hazeh, which is this world, and olam haba, the difference between those two. The next world, the next world. The next world, yes, the world to come as being nine, which he observes is half of chai, 18, a chai Mm -hmm. meaning life. So he says that in this world, we only have half a life, which I think kind of resonates with your and my, you know, the surfacing of Maimonides' observations, I guess what I'm kind of left wondering and just sort of thinking about in this moment is that the rabbis have kind of two ideas about like Olam Haba, or more than two ideas, but like two that, that sort of come to mind in this moment for me are one that they say of, of Shabbat, the Sabbath, that it is 160th of the world to come, mm. implying 160th being the rabbi's understanding of the smallest fraction of anything that can exist. <laughs> but it can be perceived perceptible, be perceived. right? Yeah. They weren't they weren't atomists, let's just say. And although they might have been actually, but implying that the world to come is permanently shut. But then the other thing that I'm sort of thinking about here that kind of gets to the the end of the episode of as uh, having enough time with the people you love is that what is the ultimate thing that a uh, uh, part of the redemption of the universe is Mikhail 18. God who resurrects the dead and getting to spend that unfulfilled time with Mm. the people who have passed, like the idea that everyone will come back is kind of another interesting take on what it means to have this life after death. Mm. Mm. That's, yeah. I'm thinking on the other side of Maimonides and the first thing you said about this the famous teaching that is in the Mishnah about a person who preserves a life, it's as if they have preserved the whole universe and a person who who takes a life, it's as though they've destroyed a whole universe. And how that is taught in the context of how a witness is instructed as they're about to testify at a murder trial. So about someone who may have murdered someone and about someone who, if their testimony is believed, will then be executed and how fraught that is. And I came a few years ago to think about this and, and, and with apologies if I've already like repeating myself on the podcast, that what this is also saying is that the divine views our life on earth as unique, as a unique part of our reality and as, as the best and the most focal part of it. And so 
if I am really me, my life history, my body, you know, all the all the contingent factors about myself are better or for worse, and attempting to strive to do good and reach the divine, that that's the whole game, and that God is upset or God is in mourning when somebody dies, that our existence will never be the same after we die, even though it might continue, which is, I think, a flip. And what I guess, again, what I love about the good place solution here is to say that your individuality matters. It's not just the abstract part of your soul that has something in common with everybody else, but Jason can have as many go-kart combinations as as possible. And that's up to him after he's freed from having to flee the people who catch him with weed. (laughs) 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 or he can have more weed, you know, (laughs) but that then there's a further thing after that, that that might come to a completion, you know, that there's sort of these, these two phases, that whole, that whole concept of the, I mean, I, among the many things that I've learned, I think is to be intrigued by that. I mean, it's obviously good TV, but I mean, it's, it's interesting philosophically also, and maybe comforting in a certain way. It's comforting, I guess, if you get, as you say, to be with the people you love, if not right away, then sooner. Although our people then develop new relationships in the afterlife, which is a whole, which is yeah. Thing. yeah. So, I mean, I guess that also invites the question, which is if uh, according to that analysis, then the meaning of life, this blip that we have going into eternity is to figure out what you need to do, what work you need to do for yourself through the course of eternity. Yeah. And that's where I think this is where, the show maybe parts way with Professor May a little bit, because I think what what he was saying is that the idea of our death or the end of our existence, that one of its functions is to create a sense of urgency, both about the moments in our life and about the rest of our life, even though we don't know how much more life we all have. And that it's not that death is supposed to convince us that our life is meaningless because we'll just, you know, end in decay, but that we only have this and we don't have it forever. So we have to do something. And I think in the good place, they don't have it. Like once they're there, they don't have to do anything. They're done solving. There's the, I guess the phase where they take the test and they might get sent back. But once you get to the good place, they don't have to, to do anything. I mean, does Hypatia want to learn more philosophy or does she just, does she just not want to be <laughs> a brain blob? <laughs> well, I mean, ultimately the implication will be that our end is that we just don't want to be anymore. Going back to the simplest of questions that Chidi would ask, Hypatia, why and how? What the assumption of the show is that there is this, to go back to Eleanor's sadness a little bit, there is this sadness of knowing that we're going to die, but also there's this kind of moving sense that there is a meaning to the end and Mm. to not being anymore. And there's something, there's something beautiful about making that a choice. And there's also something somewhat troubling, because what does it mean to choose to walk through a door that ends your existence? So, yeah, I mean, I think what they describe is that not everyone will, as we'll learn in the next episode, not everyone will choose to do that, you know, ever. Some people will figure out that they, they want, or there's some significance to a, a, an individual existence that, that doesn't end. And others will just feel that their work is complete. Which I think this show describes in kind of like a flourishing sense. Like as long as what I'm doing now is deeply good for me, then I'll probably choose to keep doing it either because I'm around the people I love who I have more to mm. more to that relationship, you know, to explore um, or something I've learned or some insight or, or whatever. 
There's a wonderful book called Einstein's Dreams by Alan Lightman, and it's imagining uh, Einstein in the process of thinking of the theory of relativity, I guess, and imagines him having a series of dreams about the nature of time. And there's a terrific chapter, which I would read, except even though it's just a few pages, it's it's too long. But but it, it starts, suppose that people live forever. Strangely, the population of each city splits into two, the laters and the nows. And it goes to explore what would be those kind of two postures, in their, in, both in their positivity. The laters reason there is no hurry to begin their classes at the university to learn a second language, etc. And the nows note that with infinite lives, they can do all they can imagine. They will have an infinite number of careers. They will marry an infinite number of times. Then there's kind of a, you know, how you can recognize a now and a later, and then sort of a twist of what's difficult about that scenario. It's another sort of cool reflection on this ending problem. And I think I was going to say that, you know, you're, you're quoted Eleanor a couple of times saying about, about everyone is a little sad. And that's, that's the neat inversion here is that they make it so that you don't have to be sad. Or now the situation of knowing that there is an end, but it doesn't have to make you sad because it's not a defined or random. Yeah. But what, what does make you sad is when people choose to walk through the door themselves. Mm. That's like a devastating moment. I, I don't want to get, I don't want to hop into next steps, but that's the source of the sadness forward is that, you know, it's not your non-existence, it's the non-existence of the other people who have populated your life and made your days meaningful, which is interesting. Can I, can I share another world to come reading with you from a book? Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite novels is the world to come by Dara Horn. And she has a different conception of the afterlife, even from the good place. But I think that it's interesting to put these, these two different one, the, the, the self-work conception of the good place that, that that the show, the good place of the afterlife puts forward. But she has this other conception that I think is worth putting into conversation. So what I'll, I'll just read it from the novel straight up. I believe that when people die, they go to the same place as all the people who haven't yet been born. That's why it's called the world to come, because that's where they make new souls for the future. And when good people die, the reward is that they get to help make the people and their families who haven't yet been born. They get to pick out what kind of traits the new people will have. They give them all the raw material of their souls, like their talents and their brains and their potential. Of course, it's up to the new ones once they're born, what they'll use and what they won't. But that's what everyone who dies is doing. They get to decide what kind of people the new ones might be able to become. Mm. That is so beautiful. Wow. And I, on the one hand, I, I think that the ultimate thrust of the show, The Good Place, is, is coming to a different conclusion about the nature of the world to come, or just a different vision of the world to come. Not, you know, Doug sets as opposed to Dara Horns. Yeah. But what I think is really special about this is what it also implies for what we're supposed to do while we're living, not just for what it implies for what happens to us after we die, because what it implies for what we're supposed to do while we're living is literally building a better world for the world to come at the world to come. Well, what did, what did you say, John, before we started this episode? What, who? Linda Carlisle. Yeah. <laughs> heaven, heaven is a place. <laughs> it's all there. It's all there. Except for the flying puppies. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I was thinking about, uh, I think Rebecca and I were talking a couple episodes ago about how that is the one missing thing in the good place conception that they didn't bring from what they're doing, which is patterning their new thing on their experience of reboots. But in some ways, from that kind of Jewish point of view, the best thing that had happened was when they said, well, we can't do anything about our own destinies, so let's go help other people learn their way in. Mm. And I mean, a Jewish thing that would be the the Dara Horn take would be to say that our our job is together to figure out how to do something for a society or for for the world. I mean, that's I don't expect that of the. It would be interesting to have a good place, you know, version or spinoff where that's the mission. You know, is not just for everybody to do tshuva, but for the world to do tshuva. But I was thinking about uh, what you what you just read actually hit me because I've been taking to trying when I say my individual prayers of the Amidah, the, the standing prayer, the first section is Avot or Avot and Imahod. It's about ancestors. And lately I've been trying more, not just to read the words in the Siddur and the prayer book, but to think about ancestors I know and think about ancestors I don't know and what they're trying to give me or what I can't do except through their gifts of whatever inspiration or moral insight, which came from them or the things that are in the world. We talk about how broken the world is, but many, many of the building blocks of the the world are here and also good things because of, of those ancestors. And I was especially thinking about it the other day. It's been a, an interesting week apropos of what you're saying. It's a week for me of of two funerals, a baby naming and a bris, a Brit Milah, you know, a new baby. I know you just came from a bris. Yeah, I know, so. literally. <laughs> yeah. And and just thinking about what this person who literally died, who I didn't know that well, you know, but whose family was talking about what they perceive as what she's giving them already now. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, is there something I can reach from that? And so the other side of the equation of, of as you're saying, I know I like the way you say it. It's not just about like, what what's going to happen to me, but, but how did you say it? What's going to what am I leaving in the world to come? Yeah. And then the, then, so the third part of that is who's going to be able to perceive that and to take that. And that, I guess in that sense, it's not just we can read the books or the histories of people who came before and try to pick up good ideas, but that in some sense, they're actively still contributing. And I found that comforting, not about death or not about this person's death, but, but I found it comforting to myself that I don't have to carry that all alone. The afterlife in that sense is affecting us. I think, I think what I'm probably trying to say about myself is that it's easier for me to integrate some idea of an afterlife because of how it might affect the world for those of us who are still here. Mm-hmm. And because I just, I have no great way to think about my own individuality later on, other than my desire to like still be there for my kids and do something for them, assuming they outlive me. I think that that's such a moving idea. And I think that I love what you just taught us about how to give intention to give kavana to that. Sometimes when you say the same prayer three times a day, it just, you know, uh, it's like, it's like eternity, right? Like it gets old, right? And Mm. like, you know, really intentionally like seeing the face or like, you know, feeling the hug of, of that person who came before you or, you know, seeing that great chain going backwards and and thinking about where you fit into it. It's a different way to encounter those words that we say so regularly. I love that. You know, and now I'm thinking about the the chime, which you were mentioning before, which certainly it's a passage of time. It's some kind of rhythm, but this sort of like crazy throwaway about Tahani, it's the most incredible chime I've ever heard. And that is coming from someone whose godfather is the most famous clock in the world. <laughs> <And> <laughs> is, ben, is Big Ben somehow your godfather? But 
having these concrete things that you would hear, not just that you would read or you'd remember in your mind, but some kind of visual or some kind of audio hook. I, I don't know. I'm probably over-reading, but, but that's kind of a neat thing too, to think that there might be, because I do try to think of my ancestors as not just the ancestors I knew or the lineage of my family, but the biblical ancestors or the inspiring historical ancestors. I don't really know who Ben was, who gave Big Ben. <laughs> well, you know, I, what you just said, I mean, if we wanted to get into the sensory experience of it all, you know, they say that smell is the strongest sense tied to memory. And I, I'm always taken by the idea in the Bible of our sacrifices being a reach nichoach laronai, a pleasing scent mm. God, you know, kind of God being reminded of our worthiness. <laughs> but it kind of makes me think that, you know, you, you need to have that, you, you need to be cooking whatever dish, you know, your grandma or your grandpa made as you were kind of imagining that as you say the Amidah or, or think about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice <laughs> at the end that Hypatia like wants to get back into art, math, and philosophy. That those things which I think are lofty in themselves and are also instruments for for good in the world, you know, that that gets called back and it's not just the ennui of this eternal existence or you know uh, apropos of that, one other thing that I'll just observe is it, it, the, the idea that immediately, you know, just came to mind as they talked about putting the exit into the good place is sort of like a release valve for when a space has too much tension, you give it a release valve so that some of that, that tension can come out. But apropos of what you just said about the ennui of it all, there's actually kind of an anti-tension in the mm. good place. And even in that anti-tension, you need to have a release. You need to have a space that can kind of give more space or bring the air in, as it were. Mm. Maybe, maybe that's the, the idea. The inspiration. Mm. Entry valve yeah. as opposed to a release valve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you were mentioning Hogwarts before, and I once gave a sermon and thinking about that as, you know, everybody goes to the same school, they sit in the same big hall, but they go off on their own moral adventures, essentially with the magic that they've learned, you know, which they're supposed to deploy, hopefully, at least some of them for meaningful things. And I actually sort of do like the, the riff on this here about the this kind of dance party, which is really not the coolest looking place, but it has all these portals. So everybody gets to come and sort of hang out in the low key place mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, reconnect with each other from these different historical periods and then go off on their own adventure through the door for a while and either, you know, come back, recheck in. I, I just would say that Jason had an awful lot of control over what that party looks like. Like he must yeah. have, you know, between the Jaguars jerseys, <laughs> and the, the hotel ballroom or what, you know, whatever it was. It, it didn't seem like Kahani and, and, and Chidi <laughs> got as much say as he did. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's so the opposite of the aesthetic of those initial dinner parties. Yeah. So in the end, do you say that you have a, a belief in the afterlife in some way, or do you have a belief in the afterlife yourself? It's funny. I was just asked this question, I believe, by some of our seventh graders who are working on a book of why. And for me, I think that I really buy into Dara Horn's vision of the afterlife. I think that it's so telling that there's actually, I love the way that she reads into this ambiguity of the phrase, the world to come, mm. right? And I think that it, it sort of speaks to your, the way that you've been saying the Amitabh and the intention that you've given to it is that, you know, our afterlife is the way that we, you know, shape and inspire um, those who come after us. That is our afterlife. And that, that to me is the most 
at least in terms of if we think about from a Jewish perspective, the idea of why we do need to vote in this world, in this life, like what, what's the purpose? And I like to think of it not as, as things that I do for my own self-cultivation, although there is, there is a power to the discipline and, and to, you know, becoming a better person through those acts. And I also like to think of it more along these lines of the place that we're building for those who come after us. That's just what I, you know, that's what I find. I, you know, I, I don't really, at least now I'm not really worrying about the eternity of my soul, mm, but mm. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll change in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I feel, I feel very similarly. And I do even intellectually, you know, keep this idea of an afterlife for me, for me, for us and, and love the ways that we've talked about it. As, as always, we seem to, you know, you and I and whoever hops on to have these conversations do take the episodes that we think going in, maybe don't have as much meat to them philosophically or conceptually and, and have discovered them. So that is a, a thank you, Dan, for, for helping me do that. Always a pleasure. And that's all for another episode of Tove. Thanks so much for listening. Even though we've just discussed the second to last episode of the series, we have more than one episode of Tove to come, so it's still worth subscribing. Give us a shout out online or however you tell people about what you're finding interesting or fun. And we would love to hear from you whenever you've come upon our podcast, while we're still recording or after. Connect with us on social media at Tove Good Place. Send us a question or an idea to tove at tovegoodplace.com. Our show notes and other resources are at tovegoodplace.com. Dan Ross is on Instagram at R-A-V underscore W-O-D with his Jewish-themed workouts. And I'm John Spirosavet with my longer-form writing at rabbijohn.net and on social media at rabbijs3 and even occasionally on TikTok at R-A-V-J-O-N. Thanks for letting us be part of your day, whatever time of day it is. And to adapt what Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean, says at the end of the official Good Place podcast, now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.